Hello and welcome to yet another Agile podcast where we turn a critical lens on the state of Agile. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and I am glad you are here. In this edition of the pod, we're going to be taking a look at the state of Agile coaching and try to answer the question, has the Agile coaching bubble burst? Yet another Agile podcast is brought to you by Mindset 180. Sign up today for Mindset 180's new leadership workshop, Influencing Change, Everyday Leadership in an Agile Organization. Go to Mindset180.com events to find dates and times. Mindset 180, putting the individual back into Agile. I was looking at Agile coaching jobs on LinkedIn the other day. I, I was a little taken aback when I saw that the, the rates, that they, they ranged from about $55 to $80 an hour. Not, not that I'm saying it's not good money. It is. It's good money. But the reality is that over the past, I'll say, three to five years, well, that's half of what it was. And it got me to thinking, did, did the Agile coaching bubble burst? The answer is probably yes. Does that mean that Agile coaches are going away? Well, that answer is most likely no. But what it does mean, it means that the market has changed. And so too, Agile coaching has changed and has to change. New models, new visions, and new innovations are needed. And not just to save Agile coaching, but to, to deliver the value that Agile coaches brought to the public and private sectors in the first place. I've been an Agile coach for a little over 12 years, and, and I've been involved in Agile development for over 20. I've seen trends and movements in the Agile industry come and go. Some stuck around longer than others. Some evolved to meet changing markets. Some never really amounted to much. Agile coaching, now, now Agile coaching, that exploded. Agile coaching spawned virtually a whole new industry. But like all products, it exists on a curve. In 1965, German economist Theodore Levitt published his product life cycle model in the Harvard Business Review. In it, he defined five distinct stages that all products go through, and those are development, introduction, growth, maturity, and decline. When you look at the life cycle of the agile coaching industry, I think it follows a similar pattern. Agile coaches, and I, and I air quote that, they actually predate Agile. Those, those were the founders of Agile, the, the ones who came up with the Agile manifesto. And, and by including the line, by doing it and helping others to do it in the manifesto, they created the idea that Agile coaches could even be a thing. Then after the manifesto was published in 2001, well, well, the number of practitioners who were coaching teams really started to emerge. They, they were coaches, but the, most of them didn't identify as coaches. They were developers. They were testers. But the value that they provided went, went far beyond writing code and testing software. They were helping others to do it better. Now, as the Agile movement began to take off, new and more formal definitions of Agile coaches and what Agile coaching was began to emerge. I see the publication of the book Coaching Agile Teams by Lisa Atkins to be a key milestone in, in the mainstreaming of Agile coaching. 
Agile coaches now included not only the technical people, the technical aspects of Agile, but also the psychology, the psychology of individuals, the psychology of teams, and, and mechanical aspects. What were the processes? What were the, what were the processes that people were doing? This, combined with that explosive growth in Agile and Agile transformation, well, that, that led to the golden years of Agile coaching. I mean, think about it. The world's largest companies were engaging dozens and dozens of Agile coaches to implement change initiatives within their organizations. Independent coaches, they, they became these niche players in the Agile transformation industry. Rates and salaries and prestige started to blossom. And, and along with that, the number of people identifying as Agile coaches, well, that, that was growing. New coaching certifications were emerging, and it was becoming, I'll say, easier to gain the title of Agile coach. With all of this, the Agile coaching product had matured, which ultimately must lead to its decline. Now, it's my belief that there were, there were two other contributing factors, two other things that, that really contributed to the bursting of the Agile coaching bubble. The first of which was consolidation. Let's face it, there was a lot of money being made in Agile coaching. And soon, the largest consultancies in the world were hiring and acquiring Agile coaching competencies. And as they did, margins became more and more important. Independent coaches became employees. The compensation was no longer about an hourly rate, but, but now an annual salary and benefits. And, and of course, in order to preserve margins, you had to find people who would work for lower rates. Still a really good living. But then, over the years, um, companies themselves began to recruit and hire internal coaches. I mean, I mean after all, there were so many of them on the market, and, and why pay a middleman? And that leads to the other and probably the most impactful change on the agile coaching industry. Supply and demand. Were the capabilities of agile coaches or the value that they provided diminishing? No, there are awesome coaches out there. But it, it comes down to simple economics. As companies gained more and more agile acumen, the demand for specialized agile coaches went down. But the supply continued to grow. And in any situation where supply heavily outweighs demand, the cost of services is going to go down. Now, agile coaching isn't dead. There's a lot of value to be gotten from what agile coaches bring into an organization. What has changed is the agile coaching market. It's time for new models, new innovations to come and provide even greater value than before. And the people who are going to come up with those ideas, you're out there. A whole new generation of transformational figures is waiting in the wings, looking and waiting for the opportunity. I hope one of them is you. And we'll be back after the break to answer some burning questions that have come in. You are listening to yet another Agile podcast brought to you by Mindset 180. Yet another Agile podcast is brought to you by Mindset 180. Sign up today for Mindset 180's new leadership workshop, Influencing Change, Everyday Leadership in an Agile Organization. Go to 
Mindset180.com slash events to find dates and times. Mindset 180, putting the individual back into Agile. Welcome back to yet another Agile podcast. I am your host, Michael Callahan. Let's get to some burning questions. The first burning question comes from Katie, and Katie is asking, can you use Agile in implementation projects? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. That's a good question, Katie. I, I think you can use Agile just about anywhere. Um, now, now there are differences. Development versus implementation projects are are very different. Right? The the a development project we're putting out new software, we're putting out new value, and we're publishing it. You know, we're we're, we're putting it into production, and people are consuming it, and and we may be able to do that uh, a little more rapidly in a in a development project, right? Putting out new functionality, developing a product, delivering it. Now, when you have an implementation product. It's it's going to depend on what you're implementing. I will say, um, you know, I, I've I've done work before on some pretty significant, large, like core system replacement implementation projects, and the 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 fact is that can you use agile? Can you use incremental delivery? You can use incremental delivery, but you may not be able to deploy and release as frequently as you can in a development project. So you can get you can get the value of feedback, right? You can get the value of getting something working in front of people, have them see it, give you feedback, and you make adjustments. Um, it's just going to be actually getting it into the field is is probably going to be on a on a longer timeline. It's going to be a longer timeline because replacing a core system, I probably can't give you new updates, you know, five times a day. Um, that, that would be the big significant difference that I would see. There are a lot of other, other smaller differences, but, but I'll tell you this, right? Um, using Agile for either development or implementation projects, what that's going to help you do is it's going to ha- help you to manage change. It's going to help you to lean out the flow of your process to make, uh, you know, to, to, to make sure that you're, you're operating as efficiently as possible and, and that, uh, that you can, um, adopt, ad- adapt, sorry, adapt, adapt to change as you go. So Katie, thank you. Thank you for that question. Hopefully it was helpful. If not, reach out and let me know. Next question we have comes from Robert. And this, this is a good question because this, this is a real agile question. Uh, Robert asks, can you please explain relative estimation and why we do it to me? Uh, Robert, I love that question. I love that question. I love explaining that. Uh, I'll tell you at its at its foundation. You know, why do we do relative estimation? Well, the reality is, as human beings, we are terrible at estimating things. We're terrible at estimating things. You know, if I go to my mechanic, if I go to my mechanic and I say, "How long is it going to ch- take to change my oil?" My mechanic's going to tell me, oh, "I can get it done in an hour." Okay, and I can feel pretty confident that he's accurate. The reason for that is he's done that 
a thousand, two thousand, five thousand times. He's changed the oil on cars just like mine thousands of times. So he can, with great accuracy, estimate how long it will take him to change my oil. Now, the the problem is the problem is that that uh, it's not the work that we do is not that repetitive. It's not that repetitive. Um, so we use something that is relative. What is relative estimation? Um, let's say I walk into a candy store. I'm going to walk into a candy store and I see a, a three jars of jelly beans. And those three jars of jelly beans, as I look at them, the first jar is probably twice as big as the second jar, and the second and the third jar are, are kind of the same size, kind of the same size. And if you ask me, can you estimate how many jelly beans are in there? Well, in order to estimate using something other than relative estimation, I could, I could count, you know, count the number down, I count back, and I could do some complicated math, you know, pi r squared and all that, and I would come back to, to you with a number. I would come back to you with a number. I'd put a lot of effort into it, and I would come back to you with a number, and that number would be wrong. It would be incorrect. So I spent a lot of time to give you incorrect information. Now, what I could do, because I looked at the, the jars, I just looked at them pretty quickly, and I, and I relatively compared their size. See, we're good at comparing things. I could tell you how many jelly beans. I'm going to say there are about twice as many jelly beans in the first jar as the second jar, and pretty close to the same amount of jelly beans in the second and the third jar. Now, that's that's relative estimation in a nutshell, is that we, we don't want to spend a lot of time generating data, generating information that's incorrect, but I can now compare things against one another. Now, as I gain more experience, the more jars of jelly beans that I see, now I have exemplars. I can go back and I can say, oh, you know, remember that jelly bean jar that we saw last week in the other candy shop? It was about the same size as this, or it was smaller than this. So, so we can use that over time, not just to compare items in front of us, but we can look at what we've done in the past and apply that to what we need to do now. So Robert, um, that's, a, that's a little bit about relative estimation. I hope you got what you were looking for. If not, let me know. And thanks for those questions. Keep them coming in. That's all the time we have for burning questions for today. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Uh, I want to thank you for giving me some of your time. I hope it gave you some food for thought. If you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at mcallahan at mindset180.com. That's M-C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N at mindset180.com. Let me know what you think. Um, send in your burning questions. This has been yet another Agile podcast brought to you by Mindset 180. Mindset 180, we're putting the individual back into agility. I'm your host, Michael Callahan. We'll be back here in two weeks with another installment. Uh, glad you came. Have a great one. <laughs>